darkness seems to hide his face. I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy seated. Let's once again go to our Father in prayer this time with our needs and cares. Father, uh, we pray. <clears throat> There's so much we see in the news, so much that's going on. Um, Father, we pray for Mexico and Acapulco and um, the recovery from the, uh, the hurricane we pray for those who've lost loved ones, loved uh, people they've loved, people who are friends, people who are neighbors, people who are co-workers, that, Father, in their, their grief, they would find hope, a hope that can only uh, come from a knowledge of your patient, gracious, saving power. We pray, Father, for rescue operations. We pray, Father, uh, for aid, food, water, and all those things that are necessary after a hurricane recovery, rebuilding, um, an economy so based on uh, tourism that will probably have months, if not years, long impact on the residents there. And we pray, Father, for those uh, with Send Relief who are going and will go with uh, relief for sure, but not just relief of physical needs, but the greater relief that can be had from knowing our sins are forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. May they be effective in getting needs met on the ground, and may they be competent and competent to speak the truth boldly. We pray, Father, continually uh, for uh, Israel and Palestine, uh, the Gaza Strip. Father, uh, we pray uh, that we don't even know how to pray, but, but we, we pray for peace. Father, we pray for uh, a peace that, that comes from surrendering priorities. We pray even more a peace that comes from surrendering priorities to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That will be a, the, the true and greater and lasting peace. We pray for our brothers and sisters there. We know we have them. We know that they are caught between worlds. We know that they are caught between uh, a, a, a world that uh, either wants to support the Arab cause of the Palestinians or wants to support the Jewish cause of Israel, and, and, and they are caught saying that I am not of this world, but Jesus is my Messiah, and he is my Lord, and he is my King. And maybe they feel like they don't have a country. Would we feel that way more often, God? That we do not have a country, but we long for the country that you are bringing. 
Give us peace amidst all these things, Father. We pray that as uh, our city, our country, our families here at Gateway start moving into this holiday season of Halloween and, and Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year, that we not lose sight of what matters. that Jesus is our everything. And if our celebrations and our plans and our uh, activities get the best of us or don't go the way we desire, still, he is king. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Turn to uh, Genesis chapter 6. We go through the early chapters of the book of Genesis. Take a little break uh, next week. Jason is preaching for us, uh, and then we'll be back in it for a few more Sundays before Christmas. Genesis 6, verses 1 through 8, the passage that at least one of you has been waiting for. I will not name that person. Um, Genesis 6, chapter 1 through 8. Appropriate, I guess, for the Sunday before Halloween. Not planned. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Imagine going back in time to early 2001 and explaining to a friend that terrorists were going to hijack airplanes later that year. Your friend's probably not going to be particularly moved. Terrorists don't hijack planes often, but it's not unheard of. But you insist this is different. Terrorists are going to hijack those planes in a few months, but not for ransom, not for some list of demands. Instead, they're going to use the planes themselves as weapons against America and, and attempt to strike at the symbols of America's economic and political might by, by crashing into the World Trade Center's Twin Towers and, and the Pentagon, and, and a fourth plane would be overrun by the passengers but it was likely headed to the Capitol building, or maybe the White House. And in fact, the, the planes that hit the towers, you tell your friend, are going to cause a fire 
so intense that it begins to warp and, and melt the structural support beams of those buildings. And as the weight of the floors above that crash can no longer hold on because of the weakening of the beams, they pancake down on top of the next floor, creating a cascading effect as each floor comes down on top of another, and thousands would die. I would think that would be hard to believe. It's a fanciful story. It is so improbable, and yet it happened. Or at least that's what they want you to believe. <laughs> but, but that's the thing, isn't it? It's such a, an awe-gripping moment in history that even those of us who were alive, who were adults, who witnessed it on TV with our own eyes, some of us live, struggle to comprehend such horror. It's sometimes easier to disbelieve truth than to believe the horrific. Our biases can often blind us to the truth, sometimes the painfully obvious truth. Early, earlier this year, uh, about a month ago, I think it was, the, the Hopewell uh, earth mounds in southern Ohio were recognized as a UNESCO World Heritage Site, putting them kind of on the same level of protection and prestige as Machu Picchu, uh, Stonehenge, the Taj Mahal, Easter Island. Now, we don't know a lot about the uh, ancient dwellers of those lands. We don't know what caused them to build them or exactly what they were hoping to accomplish, but, but we do know that they were carefully constructed, these complex earthen mounds with almost mathematical precision, not almost, by people who lived on these lands very long ago. What we do understand, what we've always understood, is that they were made by an intelligent people for a sophisticated society, a society that we are confused about. But for some early Americans, for some early explorers, that couldn't possibly have been the Native Americans that they had such derision for. So, according to Ohio History Connection, they, they speculated that an ancient culture of whites, or Asians, or maybe the lost people of Atlantis had built those mounds. While the Hopewell people remain mysterious, we, we now know a Native American culture flourished in this land a thousand years and more before Columbus made his voyage. Why do I mention these historic events and these cultures? Because Genesis 6, 1 through 8, demands that we take our blinders off. It demands that we, we put our biases aside and take God's word seriously. Because if we don't, we will have no hope of seeing the truth. It's a fascinating passage that is deeply connected to the message of Genesis. And like the Hopewell Mounds and like 9-11, both have spawned hand-waving dismissals and nonsensical conspiracy theories. So has Genesis 6, 1 through 8. 
But if we don't rush past it in our sort of awkward discomfort, and if we don't dream up fanciful tales to fill up our imaginations, we find precious truth that we desperately need. And that's that the only hope for the fallen is favor. The only hope for the fallen is favor. This passage is in two paragraphs, uh, one through four, five through eight. We could basically call this situation and response. Situation and response. We could get more specific than that, but that might give away too much up front. So let's let the text surprise us, and, and we'll tackle this passage along that, outsli- that outline, situation and response. And we'll see how this text makes the argument that the only hope for the fallen is favor. And then we'll make application of that point for you and for me. So let's take a look at the situation. This is the part you are certainly having questions about. It's the part where you say, let me get to familiar terrain. You're in your Bible plan, and you started off the year okay. You got through Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 and 4. You even read the genealogy because you're a good reader, and then you get to chapter 6, and you say, I just want to get to the flood. I, I know the flood. I had the little you know, Playmobil set as a kid. I understand it. There's rainbows. It's fun. It's cute. This is confusing to me. But this passage helps set up the flood. So we need it. On the other hand, some people, rather than just trying to rush through it, rush over it, and get to that familiar train, uh, they might get stuck here doing all kinds of quote-unquote research. Uh, Let me tell you something. If you run a Google search on Nephilim, it could end very badly. So whatever you do, don't append the phrase ancient aliens to your Nephilim search query. Just, just don't. But, but let's dig in. So, so starting in verse 1, I, I want you to note some things. It says, when man began to multiply on the face of the land, daughters were born to them. And I, I want to be clear here, because this can get lost in English. The word man here and throughout this passage is ha-adam. It's that word adam, adam, with the word the attached to the front, and and it points to mankind, the human race. It's not speaking about men in terms of maleness. It's speaking about human beings. That's throughout the chapter. And and it's a callback to chapter 5 with each of these individuals, and then, of course, into chapter 2 as well, with each of these individuals living and dying and fathering many sons and daughters. They were fertile people. And in the midst of all that begetting that was taking place, all these generations and generations, something happened. Something that impacted the the daughters a little bit more directly. Something that impacted the women a little bit more directly. What happened? Well, the text says that the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. That's a statement, isn't it? There's a lot happening here, a lot. Who or what are the sons of God we're reading about? And here's where the hand-waving or the hypothesizing begins in earnest. I don't usually survey 
the different views, but I think it, it might be a little helpful in, in this particular case. Because there is a view that has been around since ancient times, but it's not often tolerated very well by modern human beings uh, on philosophical grounds. And it's not tolerated very well by Christian thinkers on supposed theological grounds. And so that view was largely displaced for one of two other views. One of those views is that these sons of God were just, they were mighty, powerful men of old, maybe kings, maybe rulers. They took women and did with them as they pleased, and they conquered great civilizations. And that might sound weird, you know, like they said sons of God, but it's true. In, in, in Hebrew, this term God or gods, Elohim, can be used as an adjective that almost means like super duper. All right, so uh, they were supermen. They, they, not that they could fly, but they were important. They were strong. They were powerful. They were, they were maybe dangerous. That's one idea. Another idea is that these sons of God were the descendants of, usually uh, they would say Cain, uh, but some have switched that around, said they're the descendants of Seth, but it, it's the same point. The idea is that uh, the sons of the gods or the sons of God are these sort of uh, a creepy, uh, wicked, evil byproduct of the line of Cain. You saw his descendants in chapter 4 and guys like Lamech who was sort of this murderous, abusive, polygamous thug. And then you've got the daughters of mankind. So you've got these, uh, the, the daughters who are descendants of Adam through the line of Seth. And then intermarriage takes place. And you know, the Bible does warn against intermarriage between people of faith and, and people of non-faith because it can lead us astray. And so they... Uh, apparently stopped uh, worrying much about the, the faithfulness of their spouses and corruption was brought into the good line. And so this, these holy, good, decent, God-fearing people became corrupt, bad, evil, sinful people. But I don't find either of those very persuasive. The, the idea that there were kings or rulers is difficult to accept because although a king could sometimes be called a son of God, we don't really have any instances of all the kings being called sons of God. And, and there's no mention of kings or rulers up to this point in Genesis. In fact, they don't show up until much later. Um, you might wonder whether they even had kings at this point in human civilization. And more to the point, why not just say kings, if that's what you meant? Or the, the Hebrew had this term princes, uh, sar, uh, that was oftentimes used for an important ruler who was maybe a little bit less than a king. Why not just say that, if that's what you meant? And then this other idea has a, has a similar problem. God's people, you, hold on, God's people are never called sons of God. Now, the, the concept of sonship exists in the Bible. So when we say that God's people are sons and daughters of God, that's a, that's a true statement, but I'm talking about this phrase. This phrase, sons of God, is not used to speak of God's people. And 
It's also, in Bible terms, been a while since we've heard about Cain. There was no connection with him into this new section of Genesis that started in chapter 5. And if he's in view, if that's the concern, then, then why, would, why would some descendants be called daughters of Adam or daughters of the Adam and not daughters of Seth? Why would these be called sons of God and not the sons of Cain? Wouldn't that just be more obvious? And so that leaves us with this uncomfortable ancient interpretation. But it's the one that makes the most sense at face value. It's the one those who are not afraid of the consequences of this view generally hold. And it squares with the only other use that we have of this idea of sons of God, which is in Job. And there are similar terms that are scattered a couple other places, like the Psalms, where these sons of God are these elevated, powerful, spiritual beings. And the daughters of men are just that. They are human women. It makes the most sense at face value. It's what the ancient and earliest readers seem to have understood this passage to mean. And it feels like it goes against our deepest convictions as modern, civilized human beings, as good, faithful, catechized, uh, confession holding Christians kind of chafes a little bit. We don't like, as moderns, all this supernatural stuff getting in the way of my everyday life in the world. And sometimes our very shallow, uh, not very Bible-reading Christian theology doesn't have a place for strange ideas like this. Well, let's take a deep breath. We're going we're gonna to get through it. And we need to get through it because it's in the text. And yet, it's not that important. So we've got this really crazy idea about sons of God and the daughters of men. And the Bible almost glosses over it like it's an afterthought. As if to say, of course this happened. But we have some important messages to discuss, so I'll say what I need to say about it and then move on. The Bible tells us preciously little about the, we might say, spiritual realm. We know that there is a realm of spiritual creatures. We get the sense that it's large, but we don't really know how large it is. There's a sense that there's a different types of creatures in that realm, different species, we might say. For instance, we sing that in the hymn, Holy, 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 about the cherubim and seraphim. So that's two. There's cherubim and there's seraphim. That's two different creatures in this realm that fall down before thee, fall down before God. We also believe there's evil creatures that maybe don't fall down before God. And we generally call the good spirits angels. We generally call the bad spirits demons or fallen angels, but it does seem like as we read the Bible, there's more diversity than that, that those categories 
probably aren't quite adequate. But we're not told. We're not told. And, and so my conviction is that if we have everything we need for life and faithfulness, life and godliness in God's word, then the reason we're not told very much about these is because they aren't our concern. We don't need to know. And what I've noticed that if you read the pages of Scripture or if you just look at our world over the last few centuries, or even today, when people get too involved in the spiritual realm, outside of the one spirit that matters, the one God, Yahweh, we tend to get in big trouble as a species. And I know that we love knowledge. We have uh, search engines that can produce knowledge for us, and we have generative AI that can scour the depths of human knowledge and maybe give us something close to the approximating the truth. We have this ginormous encyclopedia. You know, back, back in my uh, home, we had the World Book Encyclopedia, and it, it's fascinating because, you know, you had these, this giant set of volumes of books, but they had set up, and you had to, you know, it was a subscription basis. You had to order the update every year because knowledge changed, information changed. And now we have, you know, Wikipedia that, that um, if Matthew Perry dies last night, within five minutes, Wikipedia can be changed to tell us that Matthew Perry died. Sorry if I'm breaking news to you. Um, that did happen. Um, don't go looking it up on your phones now. Wait till we're, wait till we're done. Um, we all die. I'm not trying to be crass, but it's just reality. Um, <laughs> we have a problem with information. We need to know. And I think there's some things that God doesn't want us to know. And yet what he does tell us, what he does want us to know, we need to pay attention to. So why are they called sons of God? Well, there's probably a couple things going on here. Um, on one hand, this term that we usually translate God in Hebrew uh, doesn't mean everything that it has come to mean in English. When we use the word God in English, we think of one super being over everything. And that's not really what this particular word meant in Hebrew. Um, unless the context demands it. It means like a purely spiritual being, a being that doesn't have a body, that's just a spirit form. Could be weak, could be strong, could be whatever. Um, you might remember we did a series in the book of 1 Samuel recently, and uh, King Saul goes to a medium because he wants to speak with the prophet Samuel who has died. And so he goes to what we call the, the witch at Endor, the medium of Endor, the necromancer of Endor. And she conjures up a spirit, and she, she sees, it's the same word, a, a god coming up. It's not a god, it's a, it's a spirit. It's Samuel, no body, just his spirit, and he sees a god. She sees a God, we might translate it, but we don't usually translate it that way. But it's the same word. It's the same word that we have here in this phrase, sons of God. And there it just simply meant something like ghost, apparition. 
And that term son of, we see this throughout the Bible, can really mean characterized by or taking after or be like unto. And so the emphasis here could be that they are sharing in some divine quality that the one true God has. Ultimately, the, the specific nature of these creatures doesn't matter. We just need to know the general nature is that they are spiritual beings. They are non-fleshly beings. And God is content to let us know that. What do they do? They married women. Why? We're not told. At least not why they wanted to marry women. There's a hint in here about the, the humans, and we'll get to that in a second. How did this happen? We're not told. So we, we don't like not being in the know, but God has seen fit that we don't know. Now, it's such a strange passage that, you know, even in the ancient world, they came up with myths and theories around all this that was going on. And there are some people today that have myths and theories about all these things that are going on, but there is scant information that we might love to know, and maybe one day we will know, but we're not told. The, the, the only thing we could probably conjecture is that they maybe take on human forms. We see spiritual beings taking on human forms. Uh, often in the Old Testament, we see uh, uh, Peter saying that even uh, Satan himself can prowl like around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, and, and, and that sometimes Satan and his demons we're told elsewhere in the New Testament, can appear as angels of light. So they, they appear, they seem to us, they come to us in a way that seems like forces of good. So they, they have ways of, of taking a, a form, and, and maybe just looking from context clues in other places in the Bible, that's the how, but it doesn't say. We might ask, well, doesn't Jesus say that angels aren't married or given in marriage? Yes, he does. But categorization problem, right? Uh, first off, you know, that's assuming that every spiritual entity falls in the category of angels. Probably not accurate. But secondly, if that is a point to be taken, that would kind of suggest that what's happening here is really bad, right? So who's responsible for this? And in this passage, there is a real callback to Genesis chapter 3. Just like in Genesis chapter 3, there seems to have been a spiritual enticement, but willing human participation. So in Genesis chapter 3, we have the serpent coming to Eve, and the serpent is another strange creature, and, and we don't fully understand his backstory, how he came to be, or why he's there, but, but he seems to have spiritual overtones, and he, and he entices Eve about the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but he doesn't force Eve to do anything she doesn't want, uh, doesn't uh, master her and... and 
shove the fruit down her throat. He, he just entices her, and, and, and then she wants it. So there, there's no hint here of forced relationships. There's no hint here of rape. These appear to be willing marriages. And in that culture, in that culture, they, they would have likely insisted on the father's approving of these marriages before they took place. And so just culturally, they, the, the men of that society seem to be implicated here indirectly as well. But there's something else that we have to notice. Here is a divergence from Genesis chapter 3. The sons of God, this is verse 2, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Now, again, we could get lost a little bit in the English. The word attractive there is tov, is good. The words. Usually the, the base translation, if you take a beginning Hebrew class, it's one of the first words you learn, and it's good. That's the default translation. It's, it's a richer word than that, but that's the default translation. And that echoes back to chapter 3, because what happens in chapter 3, after the serpent tempts Eve, the woman saw that the tree was good and she took of its fruit. In chapter 6, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were good and they took. They saw there's goodness, they take. And so there's an implication there that it's not just human beings that are crossing a boundary, that are trespassing. It's these spiritual creatures that are trespassing. They are crossing a boundary, much in the same way that Eve crossed a boundary many, many years before. And what happened as a result? Well, that seems to be the point of verse 4. Verse 4 says, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came to the daughters of men and bore them children. These were the mighty men who revolted, the men of renown. And so the Nephilim were the, were the product of these quite unholy unions. And the text suggests that this is a more than one-off phenomenon, that it probably happened more than once, but it's Again, it's vague on the details. We, we have more questions than we have answers. These children were mighty men, probably means like warriors, but men who made a, a name for themselves by any account. And the word Nephilim most likely, it's been debated for a long time, but it likely has to do, this is how the ancients translated it into other language, something to do with being giants, or at least related to giants. Think Goliath. In the story of David and Goliath, probably not all that tall by today's standards, but tall, large, above average, maybe even perceived to be giants more than they were actual giants, in the sense that when you come across someone who is particularly larger than life and also intimidating, they just seem even another level bigger. 
And so that's the, the situation that's going on. And, and, and as we dwell on that, you, you almost certainly want to know more. But this is what the text gives us. This is, this is what we're told. Except we can say something about verse 3. This is the one little bit more that we get. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The implication seems to be that these human beings were trying to live forever. Otherwise, this, this statement by God doesn't make a sense. I mean, God has already pronounced that they will die because of their sinfulness, because of their rebellion against him in the garden. And we just got done reading, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died throughout chapter 5. So why is God suddenly in chapter 6 concerned about these men living forever? Again, we have precious little Jesus. I don't think God wants us to dwell on this part of the existence of reality. He wants us to focus on him, but the, the, it would seem like at least the, the human interest in this arrangement was in some way trying to escape the consequences of the fall, to, to get back what they had lost in the garden. To regain immortality apart from God. And that is the vice that we all face in the deepest recesses of our hearts. We want the goodness of God, and we want the blessings of God, and we want the promises of God without God. And so we spend enormous resources to try to make work pleasurable and less painful. We spend enormous resources trying to extend the lifespans of human beings. We spend enormous resources trying to end wars and make peace without God. And we have very little success. And so in many ways, although this sounds, sounds fanciful, it sounds too hard to believe, it's part and parcel with what we human beings have always been doing, which is trying to have the good things of God without God. And God's Spirit will not abide. We're flesh, God thinks to himself. We are flesh. And the flesh, the mortal things, fleshly things, die. They're supposed to die. And so escaping that is a no-no. His days shall be 120 years. There's, there's a couple of different ways that, that people interpret that, and I don't, I don't have a strong feeling on that. I don't think it matters a whole lot, but some people take it as like 
okay, people generally aren't going to live past 120. Um, and, and you do see a tendency, you have these crazy long numbers in chapter 5, and whatever you make of those, the, the ages of people do kind of generally dwindle off from this point on in the scriptures uh, to only the point of, like, only two or three people in scripture live past 120 years after this point. Um, the modern record, I mean, we kind of get that, right? The modern record, uh, Jean Comment of France in 1997 died at 122. So uh, it's in that ballpark. The, the other in interpretation uh, is that maybe this means God is granting 120 years before he acts. So he's not saying that the, the lifespan of human beings would be 120 years. He says that mankind as a whole has 120 years before I decisively intervene. And that would square with the idea of God's gracious patience, not wishing that any would perish, but giving space that we may all repent and turn from our ways. I don't have a strong feeling on that, but that's how it's variously uh, interpreted. So why is this here? Why, why do we have these four verses? This is so... You, you could almost skip from chapter 5, verse 31 to chapter 6, verse 5. We, we might be wondering why did the wickedness suddenly uh, happen? Um, but you could almost skip over. So why is this here? I th the, the idea of divine beings uh, and having relationships with human beings was a big part of the mythology of the ancient Near East. And so the people of God would have known some of these myths. They would have known some of these stories. They would have known some of these theologies. And Genesis gives a little bit of credence to those ideas without speculating or causing fear. What I mean is, they, they're kind of, the, the, the author is, is sort of shutting down this sort of rampant speculation of the ancient world about how wonderful these creatures could have been or might have been or what, how great they were. And, and in a lot of these ancient cultures, the, the, the product of these relationships were, were, were still men of renown. They were looked up to. They were remembered. They were respected. They were adored. They were loved. Sometimes they were worshipped themselves as gods. And, and, and God is kind of shutting that down and saying, I dealt with that. I was nonplussed by that. You might call them men of renown. I don't call them men of renown. And so that's one thing. But also, there, there's a, in sort of the, the banality, the, the sort of like just almost bypassing of this really crazy subject, you get the sense in which the person of faith can look and say, I don't need to be worried about that. God is sovereign over all of this. God is dealing with it. In fact, God, he's upset, as we'll see in a second, but it's, it's not like he has to rush into something. 
He's got time. He's truly eternal. He is the source of all life. And so he is not worried. He's concerned, but he's not worried. And so neither do his people need to be worried about dark spiritual forces. And so this leads, though, into this idea. They knew probably some stories about this stuff. God says, look, there's, there's some truth to this, but you don't need to fear. You don't need to worry. But know that this is how wickedness exploded after Cain. And that's what brought me to act. So that's the situation. Let's talk about that act. Let's talk about the response. That's the the second half of this passage, verses 5 through 8, and a little bit more more straightforward. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God saw, when God sees in Scripture, it's often... Uh, similar to when God hears, it's, it's sort of like God, it, it, metaphorical language of God taking action. Like, I'm going to act now. I am taking note of this in a way that I am going to address it. It's not the sense of God didn't know something and now he knows it. And you can see it, just, just look through how it's used in Scripture. And so God decides to act, and the reason for the action was this increasing wickedness. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And that wickedness of man here is the, it's, again, it's the wickedness of Ha'adam. It's the wickedness of humanity. It's the wickedness of mankind. So that's everyone. That's all of us were so wicked that Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's a lot. You see, that seems kind of extreme. That seems like kind of an exaggeration. But it's not an exaggeration. This is not a past tense statement. It's also a present tense statement. Scripture is clear that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Why? Why would it be impossible to please God without faith? If I do good things, if I I don't kill anyone, I don't steal anyone, I I treat my customers fairly, I tell the truth, I'm upright, I'm respectable, I work hard, wouldn't that please God? No, not necessarily. Because God always is concerned not just about the actions, but the motivations for the actions. That's why in the, in the Ten Commandments, we have a, uh, a commandment that says, do not steal. We also have a commandment that says, do not covet. That goes to the heart. It goes to the motives. So it's not without reason that, that, that Jesus can say that, if you hate a brother, if you hate a person, you've murdered them. Or if you lust after a woman, you've committed adultery with her. 
Because the motivations, the intentions, the depths of our hearts matter. And if our desire to be a good person, our reckoning of ourselves as a good person is coming at the expense of acknowledging God, then something is fundamentally wrong. Because our standard of good, what makes a good person, should be based on the guy who made us and said this is what the product should be. And so we have to measure against the, the manufacturer and his standards, not our own. And our desire to do, to do good has to be born out of a desire to please him, a, a desire to honor him, a desire to be, show thankfulness and graciousness to him. Or else why are we doing it? Because we enjoy people thinking of us as good people? Because we think that there will be some reward in this life or the next? Some other selfish motivation? So without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so without faith, the reality is that this is true of us as well. That every intention of my thoughts, of your thoughts, is only evil continually apart from faith. And so the situation is bad, and it says that the Lord regretted that, it made, that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Those are thick words. And the idea is that it pained God to the very core of who he is and what he is. He was saddened. He was frustrated. He was angry. He was hurt. Because what he had designed to be good has become evil. In chapter 1, God looked at his creation. He pronounced it good. And he looked at the whole thing when it was done. He said it was very good. And then in chapter 6, he looks out on his creation and he sees the wickedness of man. He sees it is not good. And so he makes his decree. He makes his judgment. In verse 7, I will blot out man whom I created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. God's deep and profound grief over the way his special creation, human beings have gone leads him to do what he feels is his only course of action, and that is to judge them and to bring them to an end, to ensure that their attempts at living forever without him are completely thwarted, and to bring a sort of finality to this episode. And of course... 
you know, you hear people talk about, well, you're an Old Testament guy or you're a New Testament guy, because we think the Old Testament God is a God of judgment. And this kind of plays in that narrative. But remember that this is the God who created everything good. This is the God who, who designed a habitat for human beings that had all of our needs. And we would enjoy him continually forever. And he is the, the God that when we took that and we spat in his face and flipped him the bird, he didn't immediately destroy us. And even when Cain killed his brother, he didn't immediately destroy Cain. And from generation to generation to generation to generation, God waited patiently as wickedness only increased on the earth. Don't let a few verses in between cause you to miss that we're talking about an extended period of God's patience as he waits for us to return. And that is not different than the present. That's not different than the present. If only by faith we can please God, then we have to acknowledge that there are millions, there are billions of people who are living this abject reality of non-pleasing God, of every intention of the thoughts of their hearts being only evil continually. And I don't know how many people were on the earth in Noah's day, but, but there are eight, nine billion people, most of whom every intention of their heart is only evil continually, whether they realize it or not. And God has promised to act. God has promised to act. We all face it because we are all sons and daughters of the Adam, of Adam. And we have followed in his footsteps. And so we, too, fall under condemnation. God says he will blot out the man that he has created. He's going to blot out the animals that he created, the animals that he made for man to manage. Takes away the job. And we'll talk about that in two weeks. We'll talk about what that blotting out looks like, you know, the broad strokes of the, the flood. But that's not a one and done either. God judged before this. He judges after this in the pages of Scripture. And he promises to come again to judge the living and the dead. 
But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so right there, there's this little bit of hope right here at the end of verse 8. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And that, that but feels really good because that's seven dark verses getting darker, confusing, hard. Ugh. What's going on here? But then Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And we, we kind of missed this in English. I talked about this last week, how uh, Noah's name was kind of a contradiction because his father hoped that Noah would bring comfort. And, and so Noah's name kind of sounds like bring, like he's going to bring comfort. And, and we knew kind of enough of the story to know that comfort did not come to mankind through Noah. But there's a, a little bit of a play here that there is um, of Noah's name being very similar also to the idea of God's regret, but also sounds a bit like what God says here about him finding favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so something about this man is unique. Something about this man suggests that there's hope. Something about this man suggests that there is a way to escape the judgment. And we know that Noah does escape. I assume that you know that much of the story. And so what's that hope? It's to find favor in God's eyes. Not in man's eyes. Not, not from the sons of God. Not from the daughters of mankind. But to find favor in God. God's eyes. How does he do that? Well, Hebrews uh, 11, 7 uh, summarizes Noah's life this way. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah's actions, his faithfulness to God amidst the wickedness of this world were a condemnation of the world in that they were a living, breathing testimony to what a son of Adam should be. And they all were not. And when they looked at Adam, they saw someone who was in some way hitting a benchmark that God had for the human race that they were not. And what was that benchmark? Faith. It's impossible to please God without faith, but with faith, there's a righteousness that comes by true biblical faith, by Christian faith, uh, which is a trust in the work and person not of Adam, who sought to have the things of God apart from God, but in the second Adam, Jesus Christ, who was God and dies for us to bring us back to God. He dies in our place so that death does not have to be our final state. But the only way we get the things of God is through God, through Jesus 
himself. And when we trust that work that Jesus did, when we trust who Jesus is, his righteousness gets counted on our ledger. That's the righteousness that comes by faith, giving us the ability, however weak it sometimes feels, to please God. Even in some small ways. And to know that God looks at us objectively and can say he's pleased in us because when he looks at us, he sees the one who covers us, Jesus Christ. But make no mistake, the only hope for the fallen, and that's all of us. We are children of Adam. We have fallen from grace. We have fallen from God. And the only hope for us is to find favor in God, the favor that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Apart from that, we, like that generation of Noah's day, are merely under judgment. Have you found favor in the eyes of the Lord? Do you know that you have found favor in the eyes of the Lord? Let's pray. Father, may we find favor in your eyes by the blood of Jesus. If any of us have deluded ourselves into thinking that we have found favor in your eyes, but we have only found favor in our own eyes, we have only found favor in the eyes of our friends and our families and our coworkers and our bosses and the social media and all the things that we crave for attention in this world, if we have not found favor in your eyes, would you convict us of this, that we might throw ourselves at the merciful feet of Jesus and receive the righteousness that comes through faith, not our own righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus, the righteousness that was paid for on the cross that can be credited to our account. May we find favor in your eyes. May we find favor in your eyes. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's sing. Stand with me.